Let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Thessalonians 4. Again, there is an outline handout if that will be useful for you. And uh, it was just this morning I did send it out by email as well. We come to a topic which um, obviously we need to be judicious in how we talk about it. But we also don't need to be embarrassed talking about it. The scripture uh, speaks in very plain, straightforward terms. Uh, The topic and the title of the sermon today is sexual holiness. Let me remind you before we get into the text itself of the last few verses before chapter 4. Paul had expressed this prayer of benediction toward the believers at Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 3, 11 through 13. And this is what he'd said. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. I hope you remember from when we were in that text the emphasis on love-driven sanctification, love-driven holiness. The word sanctification is just the word holiness. It's part of that same word group in Greek and Hebrew, Um, it it sounds very much the same in the original language as holiness. Sanctification, we usually talk about sanctification as how God uh, makes us uh, more and more like himself in our character, right? Uh, Though we can also talk about positional and definitive sanctification, which happens at the beginning when we're saved. God gives us a new nature, which is holy. He implants his seed within us. And, um, and we are set apart not only by justification, but also by regeneration. We really are children of God, born of God. We have a new holy nature. And we have a holy standing perfectly in Jesus through justification, which has nothing to do with what's inside of us. It's all about Jesus who stands in our place. So in both those senses, sanctification, uh, really in a twofold sense, um, comes in at our conversion. But then what we usually talk about is sanctification. Uh, Usually we're talking about progressive sanctification, becoming more and more practically in our daily lives conformed to God's character in our hearts, in our thoughts, our words, our actions. Being, uh, turning away more and more, being good repenters, (laughs) turning away from our sin, our own way uh, of profane, ungodly living, which we are naturally ungodly when we do things our way, and turning to be like our God. In God's providence, we just read a passage that really emphasized those, those pictures that were set up in the Old Testament system under Moses of holiness. The essential... Uh, the the, the uh, necessity of holiness in approaching and interacting with God. 
Well, Paul just prayed that the Lord would make the Thessalonians increase and abound in love for one another and for all. And that that would be fuel and that that would be driving them to grow in holiness. And that would all contribute to one day when they were blameless in holiness at Christ's return. So now we come to um, a transition in this epistle of Paul. He says, finally then, brothers, chapter 4, verse 1. <laughs> and it wouldn't have, I don't think it would have come across in the Greek to Greek speakers quite the way it comes across to us. It sounds to us like a preacher who makes a false promise of almost being done. And then he goes on for a couple chapters. <laughs> That's not what would have been communicated by that word, finally. Uh, when Paul first said it, um, that word we, we usually translate finally uh, doesn't mean we're drawing to a close. It means uh, beyond that or beyond what I've already written. It's introducing a new section of teaching. It's a transition. So it would uh, say, OK, still with me? We're, we're moving to, to the next thing. That's what it's communicating. So, chapter 4, verse 1, Paul writes, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus. So he's, he's being tender with them, um, not just commanding them, but he's asking and urging them. So he's tender but forceful. We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus. He was an apostle of the Lord Jesus, so it was Jesus' very authority here. That as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. And then he'll go into our specific topic for today, sexual holiness. But that's not the only topic he's introducing. Uh, next few verses after this sermon text, he'll talk about other aspects of love. Sound familiar from what he just prayed about? He'll go into aspects of love for the brethren. Um... And how that ties into how we should all provide for ourselves, not um, be moochers <laughs> off of others, uh, how we ought to walk properly in this world toward outsiders, uh, things like that. He'll also talk about that. But he's going to talk about issues of love and holiness. And he says, this is what I'm going to remind you about is just in line with what you remember we told you not long ago when we were with you in, uh, in starting the church. And it's not just my, Paul's opinion on things. I'm passing on to you the Lord Jesus, what he would tell you. And, he's, and Paul says, I'm not saying this because you've messed up, necessarily. He says, um, he says, as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing. You're already doing it, but just keep doing that more and more. Stay on that track. Then he says in, in verse 2, For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, your holiness, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body, his own vessel, in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, 
Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. You see words for sanctification, holiness, all throughout here. It's, it's, it's very obvious that's the topic. Sexual holiness. So the big idea, very simple. God's holiness demands sexual holiness. You're God's holy people. You're his saints. That's what saint means, a holy one. You're God's holy people. That demands sexual holiness. You can't have one without the other. So the big idea, God's holiness demands sexual holiness. Uh, we, there would be various ways to divide this up. Um, Paul's always very intricate in how he ties his wording together as he moves along. So I don't claim this is just the be-all, end-all of how you could divide this text, but trying to make sense of it for you the best I can. We can talk about the will of God for Christian sexuality and the wrath of God against sexual impurity. The will of God for for Christian sexuality and the wrath of God against sexual impurity. First of all, verses 1 through 5, the will of God for Christian sexuality. Note, first of all, what Paul is not saying or implying. He is not approaching this saying that sexuality is the problem. Ungodly use of sexuality is the problem. God made humanity as sexual creatures. And it's the maker of sexuality who defines the true and good and beautiful exercise of that sexuality. God designed sexual activity for a man and his wife alone. And we should look at that not as, oh, God is so restrictive and repressive as our culture would. We should look at that as how good our God is to so provide for marriage and for having children. And you know, God could have done this uh, in a sense. We could say God could have provided for marriage and children any way he wanted. Right? He wouldn't have had to give us such benefits and pleasures in the process. He could have just said, well, here, here's, here's the process. Here's how you're going to get married and love each other and have children. It's kind of boring, but it'll work. <laughs> That's not what God did. God gave us something that is in his plan. According to his design, it is pleasurable. It is beneficial. It, is, it reflects um, great joy if done in the proper context. So first of all, well, I should, I guess, wrap up that thought and say sexuality is not the problem, but God designed sexual activity for a man and his wife alone. One man, one woman in marriage. That's the design, and that's God's explicit command. It's not just a suggestion based on a design. It's a command by the maker of it. 
It's holy. So verses 1 through 3 then, as we examine these verses deeper, first of all, as we look at the will of God for Christian sexuality, first of all, sexual chastity, being chaste, reserving it for its proper use, sexual chastity is a necessity for obedient consecration to God. Now, I packed a lot in there because Paul's packing a lot in here. It's a necessity for obedient consecration to God. Holiness is, first of all, being set apart in a special category. How many of you have been through at least a good part of the old teaching series by R.C. Sproul, The Holiness of God? Anyone been exposed to that? It's really, really beneficial if you haven't. And it might be beneficial to revisit if you have. Holiness is first that that otherness, that set-apartness, that specialness, reserved for special use and context. God is totally, in his own category, far above and better than all his creation, in his glory, in his virtues, in his excellencies, in his goodness. And so, holiness is, for, for humanity, holiness is, first of all, then being set apart for God as his special people, for his special service and use. Um, And then, building off of that, it's purity. Because we can't be soiled with profane, unholy things approaching a holy God. Holiness demands purity. Demands carefulness in how we interact with the thrice holy God. But, Again, I'm stressing the consecration aspect of holiness. Um, holiness is not just you being holy for yourself. It's being holy so that you can have this, this proper bond with the holy God. This, this proper relationship in his presence. If we want to, be, to truly consecrate ourselves to God as his people and truly obey him, sexual chastity is a necessity. He says, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. And really the wording originally there is not just, this is a really good idea, you ought to do this. It's, you must do this. This is a necessity. As you receive from us how it is necessary to walk and to please God, how you must do it. The idea of walking with God being... uh, figure of speech for how we live our lives, for our lifestyle. (laughs) As you receive from us how you must walk and please God, just as you are doing, uh, we're asking and urging you that you do so more and more, for you know what instructions, what commands even, we gave you to the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, your holiness, that you abstain from sexual immorality. How you ought to walk and to please God. This is the basic disconnect, one of the very foundational disconnects with almost everyone around us in our culture. Life is not for pleasing yourself. It's for pleasing God. If life is for pleasing yourself, you will not be holy in this way. Well, life is not for pleasing yourself. It's for pleasing God. 
You belong to God, not yourself. Now that is a joyful thing when you learn to truly please God and have that relationship with him that's sweet and joyful. But if you're focused just on pleasing yourself, um, obviously you'll, you'll think it's, it's, it's uh, hampering your lifestyle to please God. God's will, what he desires for his people, is sanctification. Again, you could simply translate that. It's their holiness. His people are to be holy, distinct from the common and profane, cleansed and set apart as God's redeemed people. And God's holiness is absolutely at odds with sexual immorality. They are incompatible. To be holy, to be set apart in consecration to God, a person must abstain, Paul says. Abstain. Totally distance yourself from it. Totally turn away from it. Abstain from sexual immorality. Sexual activity outside heterosexual marriage, one man, one woman, is absolutely out of bounds. Now again, your sanctification, your holiness, this is language that in the Old Testament, particularly places like Leviticus, it emphasized Israel's unique privilege as a covenant nation consecrated to the Lord their God. And so, because of that, they're distinct from the Gentiles, the nations who worship false gods. Israel was to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They were to be set apart from, from ritual and moral impurity. Why? So they, could, so they could worship the Lord and so he could dwell in their midst without judging them. It's interesting now, Paul is writing to a mostly Gentile audience, and he's addressing them now as the new covenant Israel, and he's saying, just as God said back in Leviticus, be holy because I'm holy, that's for you now. You'll see later how he contrasts them with the Gentiles, the nations who don't know God. They are set apart. They've been selected by God for himself from the profane and and, uh, impure realm of this world. Now, when our Bibles say, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that might seem like a vague term to some, sexual immorality. What are we talking about? Well, the Greek word is porneia. Of course, you can hear how some of our English words come from that. That doesn't mean it's identical in meaning to our English words. Porneia, um, as Robert Cara puts it in his good little study commentary, he says it's, in context, it means any sexual copulation outside of marriage, which includes fornication, um, premarital sex, adultery, homosexuality, incest, prostitution, and bestiality. He's trying to cover the waterfront there. Um, Unfortunately, in New Testament studies, some, for various reasons, want to be very narrow in their view of what porneia is, what sexual immorality is. But really, it's all, all sexual activity outside marriage, basically. Outside the kind of marriage God calls marriage. <laughs> one man and one woman. Jesus and his apostles were very clear on this sort of a topic. And their teaching lined up with what the Old Testament had said on this topic. The moral law of God is revealed already through the Old Testament prophets. 
But I'll tell you something else that Jesus and his apostles did not line up with when they taught on this. They did not appeal to what the culture thought about these topics, especially the Gentile culture. But even the Jewish culture, when Jesus was approached by uh, Jewish people who had disputes about marriage and divorce and remarriage and all this, Jesus did not appeal to their common sense, so to speak, in their culture. He appealed to the scriptures and he went all the way back to the beginning, to God's creation. And so, reflecting that, Paul was teaching the Christians in Thessalonica to abstain from what their neighbors thought normal and natural. If you are only, if you are molded in your opinions on sexual activity by what those in our culture will argue is normal and natural, you will be way off. Because we are sinners. Our our very thinking is deeply affected by our rebellion against God, by going our own way, far off the paths of righteousness. But Paul's standard in teaching on this was the holy perfection of the God who had made sexuality for his sacred purposes and to reflect the relationship between Christ and his church, as Paul teaches. This world of sinful humanity is in rebellion against the design and the commands of its good creator. But again, the world around us is not the measure of morality. We have to hold fast to the moral law of God who made the world. Matthew 19, verse 3, Pharisees came to Jesus and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Seems like they were trying to pull Jesus into their current debates and... No matter which party Jesus chose to side with, they, they would find a way to, to smear him. <laughs> but Jesus didn't, didn't go there in his answer. He answered, have you not read in the scriptures that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Speaking particularly of sexual union, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Robert Carr, again, um, I mean, I read some others who went to much much more detail and length, but I didn't think that would be appropriate in this context. Um, we just don't have time for one thing. But Robert Karoff sums up what Thessalonica would have been like on this topic in that day. He says, to put it bluntly, the Thessalonian Christians were living in the Greco-Roman world, which had low morals with regard to sexual sins. Again, let, let, let me just throw in my own thought. It wasn't low morals in the eyes of their neighbors. It was normal for them. But he goes on, prostitution was rampant. Using mistresses, concubines, and house slaves for sex was common. Many pagan religious ceremonies involved sexual activity. Adultery was winked at. Hence, the temptations to sexual sins were great. So although Paul doesn't indicate that someone in the church at Thessalonica had yet fallen into some sexual sin, he says, I know where you live. I know I need to remind you of this. 
I need to remind you that you are set apart. You are holy to the Lord. You are to be distinct from your neighbors on this topic in your lifestyle. People were not ashamed of using prostitutes in that day. Politicians would publicly talk about it as if it was just normal life. We have the records. Um, there was some. There is such a thing as true sexism. There was some some uh, unevenness in how they treated men and women on this topic. Women sometimes were expected to be a little more loyal to their men, but the men could do whatever they wanted, often. Uh, but even the women, um, it was expected. Like it says, adultery was winked at. Uh, it was just expected. Well, you know, we, we all need an outlet. So just don't get your family into too much disrepute the way you do it. But there are all these options in the Thessalonians' minds. And so what Paul is telling, the lifestyle Paul is commanding of the Thessalonian Christians would have been absolutely alien, foreign to the thinking of their neighbors. Verses 3 through 4. Furthermore, not only is sexual chastity a necessity for obedient consecration to God, uh, verses 3 through 4, sexual consecration demands abstinence and self-control. He had said, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Don't do it. Don't even mess around with it. Abstain. Verse 4, that each one of you know how to control his own body, literally his own vessel, in holiness and honor. Now, in calling the body a vessel, there's debates I'm not even going to get into in this context, um, but I'm just going to give you what I think the text is plainly saying here. Um, Paul is referring to each of our bodies as a vessel. It's not to demean our body. It's not to debase our body, but it is saying our body is a tool which we will put into the service of something. And it's, it's helpful, I think, to compare this to 2 Timothy 2, starting in verse 19, where Paul speaks the same way there. He says, But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now, in a great house, in a great household, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what, is, from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So it demands abstinence and self-control. You must control your body. Of course, that means you can control your body as a Christian. You cannot say, I just can't control myself. You must control your body. And of course, that applies to any sin. (laughs) 
but especially this one. That means if your senses and your hormones are screaming at you to indulge yourself in sin, you tell them to shut up. Now, there's a whole lot more to this topic. I know that. Believe me, I know. Certainly, there's much more to sexual holiness than just gritting your teeth and saying no to your bodily drives and that's all you can do. No, no, no. There's much more to the topic. But, you will get no further in sexual holiness if you refuse to control your body. Step one is to simply say no and not make excuses for yourself. First Corinthians 9, verses 24 to 27, Paul says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run, or run in, run in such a way, he means, that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, uh, a crown of victory, but we an imperishable So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body. You could even say something like, I beat my body down. And keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. After that text, he goes right into uh, recounting how Old Testament Israel failed in this so often. And how we must learn from their negative example. They would go after... Uh, idols and rise up to play and they would commit sexual immorality and God judged them severely for it. Look at verse 5 then. Verse 5 of our text. Sexual consecration refuses to be controlled by ungodly passions. It demands that we exercise abstinence and self-control and that means we're not controlled by ungodly passions. Verse 5, not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. If you are not exercising the Holy Spirit's fruit of self-control, if you are not subjecting your body to God's moral law, you are allowing your body to be controlled by something else. Your body is always controlled by something. You have to determine what that's going to be. Lustful passion will control your body, and it's an evil taskmaster. And by the way, it never has enough either. Sure, lust controls the world around us, and that tempts us to think it's no big deal. It somewhat normalizes it. But that just shows that the world doesn't know God, Paul says. It shows how bad off we are, far from the light of God. And when he says they don't know God, it's not just that they don't know any facts about God. Oh, they know some facts deep in their consciences about God and looking at what he's made. But they don't have that personal knowledge, that personal relationship with God, that kind of knowing God. That's why they act the way they do, Paul says. You cannot be comfortable in illicit sex. You cannot be comfortable in that if you know God. Ephesians 4, verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, again the Apostle Paul, 
that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Again, Paul is contrasting the Christians with their neighbors, saying, you are not to be like the Gentiles, taken from the Old Testament, the nations who don't know God. And again, that's how God talked about holiness for Israel in Leviticus 20. Uh, After, in fact, after Paul, sorry, after God lists many examples of depraved sexual practices in the ancient world, he says to Israel, you shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them, that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. And you shall not walk in the customs of the nation that I am driving out before you, for they did all these things, and therefore I detested them. A few verses down, verse 26 of Leviticus 20. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. And in just the same way, Paul is saying, you must not be like the Gentiles, the nations, the peoples around you who do not know God. Romans 1, we know the text, I think, that it was because when people knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, that God gave them up. As as they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the glory of the creature, God gave up the nations in the lusts of their hearts, Romans 1, 24, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Immorality is a dishonor our bodies and then it even goes further talking about homosexual passions God gave them up to dishonorable passions now the beginning of verse 6 in our text also says that sexual consecration refuses to take advantage of others especially Christians Paul says that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter No one transgressed. Transgressing is crossing a line, crossing the boundaries, going beyond the boundaries God has set up. So you're transgressing God's law, and no one wrong his brother, defraud his brother in this matter. As G.K. Beale puts it, the precise idea of this word for wronging a brother, to wrong someone is to take advantage of people, by wrongly taking something from them through deceptive means. The idea is that of defrauding, taking something that is not one's own through deceptive motives. When you say that premarital sex or extramarital sex, quote, isn't hurting anyone, you're wrong. It it hurts everyone. (laughs) Illicit sex of any sort demeans others, And it robs them of the honor and love that's due God's image bearers. God did not make your body for immorality. 
You weren't designed for this. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul even writes that sexual immorality uniquely sins against your own body. Immorality insults and debases the body God gave you. And it certainly does the same to the body and and the soul of a sexual partner. Remember what I started with. Sexuality is not the problem. We don't have to get all weird about appreciating it when it's in the context of marriage. That's its proper use. But outside of marriage, it's a dishonor. It's debasing. And not to mention, as we think about who does this hurt, (laughs) we've talked about those actually committing the act, but think of all the collateral damage to untold others. Adultery. Adultery certainly violates the spouse of the one with whom you sleep. And what about the rest of that family? And how many babies have been murdered in the womb to cover up immorality? Don't you don't have to wonder why it's such an idol in our culture. Because immorality is an idol. That's one of the big reasons. Besides that, convenience is our idol. And even when immorality isn't in the picture, we still murder our babies in the womb. Because it's not what we want. How we want to define our lives. And be controlled. How many divorces and broken homes and abandoned children have been left in the wake of immorality? To tell the truth, any and all sexual immorality wrongs many, many people. It it deeply harms human society as a whole. People are made traitors through this sin. You can't trust them. Everything falls apart. Sexual immorality is not about loving your neighbor as yourself. It's about taking from your neighbor what doesn't belong to you. Even if your neighbor is cooperating with you in this sin. It still doesn't belong to you. Romans 13, verses 8 through 10. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Before we move on from this point, notice Paul says that no one transgress and wrong a brother. It's especially horrific when this happens, this sin happens in the context of the local church. Or in the church of Jesus Christ at all. And it does happen that way. And God will judge it. To sin against the brethren in this way is to violate the Lord's own body. When church members engage in a sexual affair or when one church member takes sexual advantage of another church member, severe judgment is coming. That leads us very naturally to the second big point of the text, and I'm going to move faster through this point. I knew I would from the beginning, just the way it lays out. The wrath of God against sexual impurity. Sexual immorality brings the Lord's vengeance. Paul says, because 
He says all this because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Paul is very serious in his tone here. The Lord, by which Paul normally refers specifically to the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus takes it upon himself to execute vengeance against this sin. How much more when the sin is wronging someone in his body? Now, I like what what G.K. Beale says about this. He says, the judgment Paul considers here is not some mere disciplining procedure of genuine believers, as serious as that would be, by the way. Rather, those who do not break off from their former pagan ways of living should not be considered truly Christian and should certainly not be given assurance that their faith is genuine. Such people who confess to be Christians but live like Gentiles will be judged like unbelieving Gentiles. Now, let me be clear. Real Christians struggle all the time. But they struggle. They're fighting it. But if someone is comfortable with sinning in this way and and refuses to repent, um, if that's the big picture of their life, they're going to hell. We have to take it that seriously. Verse 7, sexual immorality defiles God's holy calling. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. God called us to himself in the whole context of holiness. When he called us to himself in salvation, he called us to be reconciled to him in holiness. To be, reun- to be united with him, not to go on trashing his holy image. Not for impurity. God didn't forgive you your sins so that you could keep on committing them. Not for impurity. He called us in holiness. And third, sexual immorality disregards God's Holy Spirit. Notice the holy theme again. Sexual immorality disregards God's Holy Spirit. Verse 8. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. This reflects, if you want to go on your own, look at Ezekiel 36. God's promises in the new covenant to his new covenant Israel. God promised to give his Holy Spirit, put his Holy Spirit within them and cause them to walk in his statutes and be careful to obey his rules. I'm going to conclude. We're at one o'clock and uh, some of our folks are are leaving even now to, to minister elsewhere. Um, and that, that's, that's fine. But let me just conclude with one text. Let's turn there together. Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 17. You may kind of either self-righteously or just trying to make yourself feel better, you may get through a sermon like this and think, Whew, I'm glad I haven't been engaged in the wrong kind of sexual activity. That doesn't mean you are really honed in to sexual purity. Listen to what Paul says, Ephesians 5, 1-17. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, 
And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness, even what you're desiring in your heart, (laughs) or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. That is, we should be embarrassed even to talk about it the way the world talks about it. Paul talks about it, but we shouldn't be comfortable even with seeing it in our speech in a light way. Verse 4, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Be careful what kind of friends you have and how they talk about this topic. How it gets you comfortable hearing about certain things in a certain light. Be sober about what you turn on for entertainment. Not just on the Lord's Day, but on Monday. Be sober about it. It affects you. Don't just see what you can get by with without actually committing the big sin. Be holy as God is holy. You need a totally different mindset than the world around you about this. And there's great joy in it. There's great joy in truly being clean, having a clean conscience, and having fellowship with God in that context. But you have to get rid of this kind of filth. What's normal for the world around us. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we thank you for the sober warnings on this topic. Help us to know that you warn us because you love us. You want what's best for us. We don't always want what's best for ourselves. Often we are badly misguided and deceived, self-deceived on what is best for us. Help us to go even deeper beyond the basics in this text. And be sure that we each know what holiness in this area of life is all about. Help us to consecrate ourselves to you and realize we don't belong to ourselves. We, we dare not use our bodies however we see fit. Help us to love holiness. May that be what drives our conduct and our affections and our desires. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.